This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery again, coming to you for the 115th time exclusively from the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com. Recently, I ordered writer Lynn Joyner's 2009 uh, work entitled Honorable Survivor, Mao's China, McCarthy's America, and the Persecution of John S. Service. I don't know exactly why the life of John Service particularly intrigued me. I knew of John Service back in my college days and that he was one of the famous China hands of the 1930s and 40s and that his name was included in the shortlist of those singled out for supposedly losing China. Let me put the good old air quotes around the words losing China. The more I read of Lynn Joyner's excellent book on the life of John Service, the more I began to realize I think we might have the makings here of another one of those multi-part episodes that I've been putting out from time to time. When I first considered the subject of John's service, I was thinking, how was I going to accumulate enough factoids and interesting stuff on John Service's life to fill a 30-minute podcast episode? Then I found Lynn Joyner's book, and this led me to this and led me to that, and now I'm already trying to rein in this one and not let it spin out of control. And then in the middle of researching this topic, I realized, man, this is the time to bring out Barbara Tuckman's Stillwell in the American Experience in China. You see, in looking at the life and times of John's service, you sort of get five or six podcasts for the price of one. There is a veritable cavalcade of stars who give the performances of their life during this wartime epic. There were the two principal sound stages where this whole drama was played out. That was Chongqing, a.k.a. Chongqing, and the other was Yan'an. Then, once you threw Washington, D.C. into the mix, the drama sometimes descended into a three-ring circus. Now, usually I will give you, at no additional charge to the basic fee you're paying right now, a list of Chinese terms from the episode so that you could follow along and not get tripped up by any of the putonghua. But in this series... I'm going to throw so many names at you, especially in part two of this budding epic story. What I'll do is keep a running list of who's who so you can keep everyone straight. There were political guys, military guys, envoys, OSS spies, Yanks, Brits. But in telling this story, we can get a feel for those times that followed the Japanese invasion in 1937 and the Civil War that followed. The entire subject of U.S.-China relations since the earliest days in the 18th century has always fascinated me. Even today, thanks to all my expat heroes in China who get the word out in so many different ways, I can't get enough of U.S.-China news and analysis. So it's interesting to me to look at the state affairs today with U.S.-China relations and contrast it to this Interesting time from basically the Mukden incident to the final defeat of the nationalist forces in 1949. 
All these larger-than-life characters all mingle together at one time in the cities of Shanghai, Beijing, Hankou, Kunming, Chongqing, and Yan'an. The reason why this period was so important was because of the magnitude of the failure. When you think about the what-ifs and lost opportunities from the diplomatic failures of this time, it's staggering. It was an amazing mix of big egos, inferiority complexes, people bent on revenge with an axe to grind, people just out to make a buck, revolutionaries, patriots, incompetents, and personalities born to lead. Despite the force of will of one of America's greatest presidents and the work of such amazing and dedicated people, both civilian and military, there was simply no way to bring everyone together to read from one single hymn book. From suffering through so many past CHP episodes covering China in the 20th century, you all know it was a very rough, winding, and complicated road. The aftershocks from the cataclysm that happened after Mao and the communists emerged victorious in 1949 sowed the seeds for what George Orwell and Bernard Baruch first called the Cold War. You see, the interesting thing about John's service was that he was hardly anyone of high rank or power. He was a low-level diplomat in his 30s when he was rubbing elbows with the likes of Mao, Zhou Enlai, General Stilwell, Henry Wallace, Jiang Kai-shek, Song Mei-ling, her brother T.V. Song, and their brother-in-law H.H. Kong. When Madame Jiang first met him, she said, Service, what a lovely name. We hope you'll be of service to China. He was born in China, spoke Chinese, and had all the necessary sensibilities, sensitivities, and smarts that allowed him to be accepted by most Chinese. He wasn't a hero or giant in his field. He was a man with flaws and weaknesses, made some bad choices in his life. He became one of the more celebrated victims of the McCarthy era that began with the Wheeling speech, I guess, on February 9th, 1950. This is just four months after Mao declared the founding of the PRC. I told the story of Nixon's visit uh, to China back in two of the earliest CHP episodes, number eight and nine. RN shook Mao's hand on February 21st, 1972. What happened between October 1949, when the PRC was established, and this handshake that many say changed the world? Why did it take the United States and China almost 23 years before their leaders came together like they did in 1972? What kept these two superpowers apart, despite the obvious benefits to be gained through mutual cooperation and friendship? Well, like every question of that geopolitical sort, there is a story. And in this story lie the very roots of the holiest of holies in China, the Taiwan Wenti the matter of Taiwan. If you think this is an emotional issue today, back in the days when John's service was moving back and forth between Chongqing and Yan'an, the hatred, deceit, duplicity, loathing, and mistrust between the Guogong Liangdang, the KMT and the CCP, was at a full and rolling boil. And no matter who you were, you could only pick one side. There were no fence-sitters when it came to this subject. We all know how this turns out. We all know who the Americans sided with during the Chinese Civil War. 
In the end, what happened happened, and from that defeat, from that moment when so many outraged Americans roared that China had been lost, the Red Scare began in earnest, and with that, the whole nasty, ugly Cold War. We all know how it turns out, but maybe we're a little rusty on how the story unfolded in the late 30s and into the 40s and 50s. So let's look at the life of John Stewart's service, and as we do here at the Royal China History Podcast, we'll put his life in the context of the history that was going on all around him. Today, let's focus on his background and where he came from and how he rose to the level where he was rubbing elbows with some of the most historic men of their time. Like I said, service was one of those many thousands of Westerners born and raised in China who had mostly made their way there to serve as missionaries or children of missionaries. Service's father, Robert, or Bob as he was called, did a rather gutsy thing back in 1906. This was during Teddy Roosevelt's second term in office. He moved to Sichuan, to the city of Chengdu, to open a local office of the YMCA. There, Bob Service and his wife, Grace, brought up three boys in this harsh environment. Well, harsh for a newly arrived Westerner, that is. To the boy, John Service, this was the only home he knew. He grew up speaking the Sichuan dialect, which is you know, people on the streets spoke in Chengdu. From all accounts, his mother was a saintly woman who worked tirelessly for her family in a strange world that wasn't their own. John Service was born August 3rd, 1909. The last emperor, Pu Yi, was on the dragon throne. And being three years old and all, this emperor wasn't able to hold China together. So, 1911, in the years that followed, Xinhai Revolution, the Republic of China, Sun Yat-sen, Yuan Shikai, Song Jiaoren, Wang Jingwei, the Tong Menghui, this was the China that Jack Service grew up in. He was homeschooled by his mother. She used a mail-order service to provide the teaching materials. His friends were fellow Western children within the missionary community whose parents served any number of Protestant churches. One of his earliest childhood friends was John Patton Davies, son of Baptist missionaries. Remember that name. He's going to end up getting raked over the same coals as John's service when the Red Scare is raging. As someone who has a mild interest in China, it's nothing less than fascinating to me to think about what it must have been like to grow up in this world. Chengdu was not Beijing or Shanghai, not by a long shot. He was about 10 years old when the May 4th movement took off. So young John Service was, I guess you could say, coming of age in a China that was unwittingly on the verge of two bloody decades of warlordism, Japanese invasion, and then civil war. He attended boarding school in Shanghai, and as an 11-year-old, got to witness with his own eyes the Shanghai of the 1920s. He was walking the same streets of the international settlements as Carl Crow, who we featured in CHP 079. For his senior year, the family moved back to the U.S. for the occasional home leave. They were based in Berkeley, California. And when the home leave was over, the family went right back to Shanghai, and it was there that they were based. Bob's service was riding high in the YMCA hierarchy and was serving as a regional director. When John's service was 17, he took off for college, attending Oberlin 
and becoming a BMOC in no time at all. He met his wife Carolyn there. Carolyn Schultz was the daughter of an Army Corps of Engineer colonel. John and Carolyn both graduated in 1931. The service continued on at Oberlin, studying uh, an art history program, and contemplated life as a professor. Then fate intervened, doesn't it always? The Japanese military provoked the Mukden incident on 9-18-1931, and that signaled the beginning of what was going to be 14 years of major bloodletting between China and Japan. Not to mention enmity that lasts even to this very day. The service family escaped the worst of it and reunited in California. That's where John's service learned that his boyhood friend from Chengdu, John Patton Davies, had joined the Foreign Service and was serving in China. I guess for a young 20-something with his unique skill set. This seemed like a good idea to do at the time. John Davies was a lifelong friend, and they shared a lot in common. By early 1933, service took off for Shanghai to wait out the hiring freeze at the Foreign Service and try and find a way to get in through the back door as a clerk and try to make himself useful and get some priority. He applied for a gopher job at the U.S. consulate and ended up getting assigned to the city of Kunming, which back then was called Yunnanfu. His soon-to-be wife, Carolyn, joined him in the Orient in November of 1933. They were married in Haiphong by a French mayor and took off the next day for Kunming. Carolyn hated it there. She lasted six months before being shipped off to Shanghai to go live with her in-laws and more civilized living conditions and comforts. This left John's service alone in Kunming, now a vice consul, to focus on his job, learning all the nitty-gritty of consular operations. This was his training ground, where he paid his dues and let his natural organizational and communication skills shine. He lost his father in the summer of 1935. On the heels of this personal tragedy, the federal hiring freeze at the State Department was lifted. And before long, he was part of the China unit of the U.S. Foreign Service. John and Carolyn's service packed up and headed north to Beijing, where he began intensive language training. During this Beijing period in his life, he's still only 26, 27 years old. The Japanese are driving everyone crazy with their antics in North China, especially in the new puppet nation of Manchukuo. It's during this period in the fall of 1936 that service hears Edgar Snow speak about his three-month stay in Yan'an, immortalized in his groundbreaking book, Red Star Over China. This is the first time John Service hears about what the communists were doing up in their Shanxi, northern China stronghold. He's very intrigued with what he hears. Edgar Snow introduced the communists to the world, but at this early stage, no one was taking them seriously yet. That will change on December 12, 1936, when we have the Xi'an incident. I'll cover this in another podcast one of these years. Jiang Kai-shek is kidnapped and sort of frog-marched into signing a cooperation agreement with the communists where they would join forces to defeat the Japanese. There followed about six months of reluctant cooperation that fortunately for the communists allowed them to catch a breather and consolidate their position in the north. Then, 
July 7, 1937, the Marco Polo Bridge incident, the second Sino-Japanese War starts, and it's non-stop misery in China for the next eight years. It just so happens John Service was not too far away from the Marco Polo Bridge when the shooting started. He was still in Beijing, recovering from a bout of yellow fever, and heard the gunfire as he lay in his hospital bed. With these Japanese hostilities now in full swing, the U.S. government asked all American dependents the following month to get out of Dodge. Carolyn took their two kids back to America where they waited out the crisis at her parents' place in Berkeley. John Service spent his Beijing period studying the language intensively and gathered information for the government in Washington about what was going down in China. The last weeks of 1937 and into 1938 witnessed the worst of the Japanese atrocities in China. The China government had to abandon Nanjing in the face of the onslaught, and they retreated upriver to the city of Hankou, one of the three cities that makes up the metropolis we know as Wuhan. There, the Chiang Kai-shek government did their best to show a brave face, the fantastical myth of the nationalists led by Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek, bravely facing down the Japanese alone with no help or support of any Western nation, began to be constructed. And the chief architect of that myth was none other than Henry Luce. We'll hear more about him later. He's going to become one of the, if not the, most outspoken proponent of the Jiang regime and free China. Right about now... End of 1937 into 1938, Chiang Kai-shek launched his secret weapon on the unsuspecting. This was none other than his wife, Song Mei-ling. Over the next several years, she is going to play a starring role as the face of China during all the chaos and brutality that was happening all over the country. She used every drop of her formidable charm to raise money and garner support for the cause of free China in their lone fight against the vicious and destructive Japanese military machine. This is where Claire Chenault and the Flying Tigers are called in personally by Madame Jiang to assist in training Chinese pilots and to contribute to the desperate war effort. This is also where Chenault's commanding officer starts writing his name into the history books. This was None other than General Joseph Warren Stilwell, a.k.a. Vinegar Joe, a.k.a. Uncle Joe. General Stilwell is going to play one of the starring roles in the political and military drama that is going to unfold between the United States and China between 1935 and 1944. He had served three tours of duty in China and was fluent in Mandarin. He had been around China since 1911. In U.S. military lore... There are endless stories about General Stilwell. A West Point grad, a decorated World War I veteran. He was a soldier's soldier and a great strategist. He told it like it was and suffered no fools. And famously, it's his impatient and tell-it-like-it-is attitude that turned Chiang Kai-shek into his biggest enemy. But we'll get to that later. From 1935 to 1939, Stilwell served as a military attaché working out of the U.S. legation in Beijing. He began to take stock of the situation at once. 
and tried to get a handle on what they were up against as far as the Japanese were concerned. This is where Stilwell got a first look at the communists as a fighting force. It had been more than 10 years since Jiang, with the help of the Green Gang, flushed out all the communists out of Shanghai. April 12, 1927, is when the Shanghai Massacre commences. There was no love lost between the nationalists and communists, and it seemed, maybe, just maybe, these two sworn enemies to the death might join together now to fight their common enemy, the Japanese. But, you know, this cooperation, it was never meant to be. Even after the Xi'an incident in December 1936, it was always a sham. Despite the hardcore persuasion of the Americans, led by FDR and his advisors and envoys, there was no way in the world that you were going to get these two polar opposites to bury the hatchet and join up for the sake of the country. And it was an endless source of frustration for Jiang and all the nationalists that they couldn't get the Americans to see that. Americans appeared utterly oblivious to the history, the backstory, and the recent incidents that created the whole dynamic that existed between these two foes. This whole matter of the KMT and the CCP and all that bad blood went back almost to the time of the party's founding in 1921. Now in wartime China, they both played this game with the Americans until the end of the war. The game was called, let's dupe these Americans into thinking we're going to try and get along and fight the common enemy. But in the end, forget it. As far as control of China went, there was only going to be one winner left standing in the end. And Mao was no less determined than Jiang to be that last man standing. I can't speak for the KMT's intel, but as far as the USA was concerned, no one back then knew anything about Mao Zedong and his merry men who had already gone on their long march and were establishing their base in northern Shanxi in Yan'an. The Americans were curious about Mao and what the Red Army was able to accomplish without any outside support. The first one to try and establish contact with the communists was Jack Service's boyhood friend from Chengdu, John Davies. He was one of the earliest diplomats to be saying, hey, we ought to get to know these guys. Jack Service got himself transferred to Shanghai, where he served in the U.S. consulate there. The Japanese were in firm control of the city. There, Service performed well and continued his ongoing diplomatic training. He also continued to exhibit his can-do attitude and the way he was game to handle any problem the consulate faced. He worked side-by-side side with John Carter Vincent, who, like service, would later on be considered one of the China hands of this period. More of John Carter Vincent later. The Japanese took Hanko on October 28, 29, 1938. The city had served as a temporary resting spot for the China government, but once the heat got turned on too high, they had to move further west to Chongqing, about 600 miles away. There, in Chongqing, they set up the nationalist government apparatus, and it was from here that the wartime government held fast. And the city would face merciless bombing raids that went on until the Japanese could no longer fight. Once things got too dicey, Jack's family was evacuated again. They had come back when things had calmed down somewhat, but now was no time to risk the lives of his whole family, so he sent them back to America to wait out the crisis and plunged headfirst into the endless hours of work as third secretary of the U.S. Embassy in Chongqing. You know, during these early years of their marriage and 
Even when the kids started coming, John and Carolyn's service were apart constantly for long periods of time. And another thing about John's service, by the way, he was great at writing reports, but not too good at writing home. In Shanghai, by the way, he worked under Clarence E. Gauss. Gauss was a long-time Foreign Service veteran of China, serving as a diplomat in China between 1912 and 1944, the last three years as U.S. ambassador to China. He served briefly also as a minister to Australia before Roosevelt sent him back to China to serve as the wartime ambassador there. He was a no-nonsense, brilliant, and capable diplomat, though he didn't speak Chinese. The fantasy of KMT-CCP cooperation to please the Americans was still in full swing. The hatred between the two opposing sides was as hot as any rivalry or feud. But FDR and the State Department could not let go of that thing that they had about the CCP and KMT joining together and fighting side by side against the Japanese. They didn't know back in 1943 what we know now about the futility of getting these two sides to come together back then. Now, in retrospect, we can all say, you know, what were these guys thinking? Back then, there was this naivete about the dynamic in China, the history of these two groups, the KMT and the CCP, the whole situation on the ground in the cities, the villages. You'd be surprised at the magnitude of the ignorance about China in the halls of power in Washington in the 1930s and 40s. And I hate to say this, most of all, I guess, with our indestructible four-term 32nd president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The questions they asked, the things they assumed, the orders they gave, and other utterances recorded down that made it down to this present day. I'm sure on both sides, KMT and CCP, these guys must have thought, man, these Americans don't know diddly squat about anything here in China. This was going to be a winner-take-all fight, and it seemed only Jiang, Mao, and their people knew it. For the sake of appearances and to stick close to the Americans for the sake of possible support, the CCP kept a representative in KMT-controlled Chongqing. And this rep's name was none other than Zhou Enlai. And it didn't take long for John's service to meet with Zhou. The U.S., as anyone who listens to Ray Harris Jr.'s brilliant masterpiece of a podcast series will know, took a long time to get in the war. Hitler invaded Poland in September 1939. It took until Pearl Harbor in December 41 for the U.S. to declare war on the Axis powers. Before then, the U.S. was neutral. Well, neutral and not neutral. We knew who we had our money on, but nothing overt was done until now. March of 1941, the Act to Further Promote the Defense of the USA was passed by the U.S. Congress. This became known as Lend-Lease. A lot of crooks got rich off this. If anyone in the present day thinks what happened in Iraq was the first time U.S. contractors ripped off the taxpayers, guess again. The benefits of the Lend-Lease program were first meant to help out our erstwhile allies and European cousins, the British, but now FDR had it extended to the Chinese and the Russians. Now, only 3% of the $50 billion that the U.S. gave in Lend-Lease support actually went to China. And of that 3%, how much of that was 
wasted or ended up in some corrupt official's pocket was staggering. It wasn't just the KMT officials and military top brass who were getting rich off of this. Plenty of Americans, too, were in on it. And I don't have all the figures, but plenty of stuff fell off the back of the truck and was sold to the highest bidders in the black markets of China. A company was set up to deal with all the minutia of actually getting the supplies, materiel and whatnot from the U.S. to the hands of the Chinese and Americans on the other end, who distributed everything to where it was needed most, or yielded the highest profit, I guess, in most cases. The company was called the China Defense Supply Company, and to make sure everything was kept honest, they made T.V. Sung the sole agent, with Tommy the Cork Corcoran as general counsel. Tommy the Cork was one of FDR's kitchen cabinet, to use a term from the Reagan era. The guy in charge of Lend-Lease, and for the time being, was FDR's economic advisor, Lachlan Curry. And for the time being, he was FDR's main point man for all things China. Lachlan Curry was actually Canadian by birth, and I'd say he's a little-known but quite controversial bloke from mid-20th century U.S. history. He had been sent to Chongqing by Roosevelt earlier to meet with the two leading representatives of the KMT and CCP there, namely Jiang Kai-shek and Zhou Enlai. And it was from this visit, after meeting with Jiang and Zhou, made by Curry, that Len Lease got switched on in China. They both let this presidential envoy know they needed help fast or they'd be overrun by the Japanese. Curry, in his naivete, came back from this fact-finding trip and convinced Roosevelt that Jiang Kai-shek seemed to be teetering between installing a dictatorship or possibly going the American way, a liberal democracy with all the fruits, nuts, sugar, and fixins. And I bow my head in shame. But the great FDR himself, he just wasn't getting true and accurate advice. And himself wasn't what you'd call terribly knowledgeable about China. So Curry urged FDR to send a special advisor to Jiang to keep him on staff there to hang around the Generalissimo and keep the White House informed on all the latest chatter and buzz going on in wartime Chongqing. Once all the ducks were in a row, one of the first things done with the Lend-Lease program in China was to arrange for the transfer of desperately needed aircraft to China, along with a hundred pilots who formed the First American Volunteer Group, the AVG, and they have been immortalized in the history books, Hollywood, and corporate America as the Flying Tigers, who were led by General Claire Chenault. In a nutshell, their mission impossible was to defend the Chinese against the Japanese. My first job out of college was with the Flying Tiger Line. I had just moved to L.A., and my cousin Dennis got me a job there. The company had been formed by a former Flying Tiger pilot named Robert L. Prescott, FedEx bought them in 1989, and that's when I skedaddled from the company and moved to Hong Kong. Anyway, the Americans find out right quick. They had to handle Jiang Kai-shek like he was a loaded keg of dynamite. The prevailing attitude in the early part of the war in 1941 was to keep stroking his ego, make nice, make promises, and keep the generalissimo in the war tying down the Japanese. At all costs, they had to prevent the Japanese war machine from just steamrolling all over the place. This would allow the Japanese military planners to free up troops and equipment that 
could be used elsewhere. I'll repeat that because that was key to American strategy. They had to keep Jiang in the game and offering up resistance to the Japanese military. And the problem that provided the constant source of disagreement and frustration for U.S.-China relations at the time was Jiang was more intent on using the resources available to him at the time to finishing off what he failed to do in the Shanghai Massacre than in fighting the Japanese. So into this noxious mix arrived U.S. Ambassador Clarence Gauss and the new presidential special advisor to Chiang Kai-shek, Owen Lattimore. This great China hand grew up in Tianjin, where his parents taught English. He was a scholar's scholar, a great writer, and one of the preeminent Mongolian and inter-Asian specialists of his day. When FDR called him in to do this job, he had already long established a name for himself as someone who knew China. So at the U.S. mission in Chongqing were Ambassador Gauss, his deputy chief of mission, John Carter Vincent, John Service, and Owen Lattimore. Although Clarence Gauss was not a Mandarin speaker, between all four of those guys, you had a lot of knowledge and understanding about what was going on in China. Of that team of experts, John Service had the best fluency in Mandarin, and this made him a natural go-to guy for many things that came up. One of the things Service did was to prepare a daily cheat sheet of all the news going on in China. Sort of a precursor of Bill Bishop's Sinocism report. Like Bill Bishop's Sinocism, this briefing that Service put together became de rigueur reading for any diplomat wanting to keep tabs on what was really going on in China. John Service was just one of those amazing administrative machines who knew how to churn out reports, handle all kinds of technical communications matters, set up meetings, be a fixer, a handler, and was altogether indispensable to Ambassador Gauss. In the months leading up to Pearl Harbor, everyone did their job and tried to humor Jiang. He was a suspicious character to begin with. But all the secrecy at the embassy and the complications and paranoia caused by having the CCP in the picture and on the rise, seemingly, was doing nothing to advance the cause of U.S.-China relations. You see, the Red Army, by this time in 1941, had managed to make a few headlines with their own victories against the Japanese up in the north. So they were getting a little bit of shine on them, and this, of course, made Chiang Kai-shek furious and more determined than ever to stamp them out. But now that the U.S. of A. was in for a penny and for a pound as far as World War II was concerned, they were trying like crazy to bring the fighting abilities of Mao's Red Army into the fold. That would be a nice addition to the war effort in China. Edgar Snow had already opened up Pandora's box, so everyone knew about them and that they knew how to fight back against the Japanese, and if they couldn't kill Japanese soldiers. They knew how to carry out guerrilla tactics that slowed them down and made the lives of the Japanese miserable. So now that America had declared war on Japan and their allies, it totally changed the dynamic in Chongqing. John Service later recalled, quote, the Chinese were beside themselves with excitement and pleasure. To them, this meant assurance of victory. They sat back after that and didn't do much. Yeah, old Moneybags was finally in the war, and everyone in Chongqing was positioning themselves to get a piece of the action. And John Stewart Service, 32 years old, was right in the center of the universe as far as the 
war effort in China went. There's a little sidebar. Uh, Lynn Joyner mentions in her book about what a stand-up guy John Service was. Ambassador Gauss had managed to procure a new car for the embassy use in Chongqing. The problem was that the car was down in Rangoon, Burma. Remember, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, they didn't stop there. When FDR gave his famous speech about the day that will live in infamy, he announced that the Japanese had also bombed Hong Kong, Guam, the Philippines, Wake, and Midway Islands. They were on a major roll in moving in a westerly direction towards Burma. Natural resources heaven. So Service said to his boss, the ambassador, Hey man, don't worry. I'll head south to Rangoon, pick up the car, and drive it back before the Japanese swarm in and all hell breaks loose. He arrived in Rangoon, which was already feeling the stress of the impending Japanese invasion. Air raids were already going on. Service found the car and drove the whole Burma road for three weeks back to Ambassador Gauss and brought the cigar-chomping diplomat 3,000 cigars in the boot of his car. As 1942 dawned, Chiang Kai-shek did something he would live to regret. He told FDR that the president should send an American to serve as part of the Allied military command in China that you know FDR had just given to Jiang. This is where Vinegar Joe enters the story again. Jiang is going to learn to hate this guy. Their feud was legendary in the annals of World War II history where China was concerned. You see, I explained Stilwell's personality, the combination of military brilliance, guts, experience, and a blunt, outspoken style. A guy like Stilwell, with all his years in China and fluent in the language, he had to have known he was crossing the line as far as Li Mo was concerned, or etiquette. You see, by now, Stilwell had seen enough. He had come to know both sides quite well, and at that time in 1942, he considered the KMT as rotten, self-serving, and ineffective as a military force. Jiang's plan was the best-known secret amongst the cognoscenti. He was using his numerical superiority in the field to pen the Red Army in and not let them scatter from their stronghold in the north. Then he was going to wait out the war, and once Japan was defeated, which was inevitable, everyone believed, he'd use the whole of his military muscle, all the stockpiled Lend-Lease weapons and supplies, and just go pound the Red Army and finish the job off once and for all. But this isn't what the American government wanted. And this strategy that they believed Jiang was using ran counter to what Stilwell was sent there to do in the first place. So as I said, a whole Peking opera was going to be played out between all these players, the U.S. military people, the diplomats, the visiting VIPs and delegations, constantly shuttling in and out of Chongqing, Jiang Kai-shek, Madame Jiang, TV Song, Winston Kong, Tai Li, and all the while bombs would be raining down on the city, and John Service was right in the center of all this. Now, Stillwell had been around a long time, but he had never officially been introduced to Jiang Kai-shek. So this is when their personal relationship begins in earnest, early 1942. This is the worst part of the war for America and her allies in the Pacific theater. In the months that followed Pearl Harbor, the Japanese just rolled in like an unstoppable force of nature. The allies hadn't 
been able to organize a coordinated defense and nothing was going right yet. The Burma Road, the sole lifeline from the outside world into southwest China where the government was holed up in Chongqing was finally cut off. With the closure of the Burma Road, this is when history witnesses the beginning of those daring and heroic pilots who flew supplies into China over the hump, as the Himalayas were called. The heat was really being turned up in Chongqing with respect to the control of the narrative and the agenda. Millions of 1942 dollars were at stake now, and whoever controlled the Lend-Lease supply chain controlled the commissions and profits. So serious measures were taken to keep everyone off the scent of the corruption going on. The censorship and restrictions were oppressive and won the KMT few admirers, especially those working in the U.S. Embassy. Everyone on all sides knew the score, but no one dared to make any move against the other. They all had to get along, lest Roosevelt get wise to the situation there. A snow job had to be carried out on anyone who came sniffing around looking for dirt to bring back to the president. Despite all the restrictions on what was allowed out of Chongqing and where one was allowed to go, John's service, with his fluency in Mandarin, his willingness to take a risk, and his natural abilities to just melt into the population, went out everywhere to get the skinny on what was up and who was doing what. He did this, and he was very effective. And like he always did, he wrote up those excellent reports for his superiors who then, you know, looked like they knew what they were doing when they took service's hard work and presented it to the president and his advisors. It was John's service on one of his fact-finding missions who first learned about the beginnings of the Hunan famine. This was one of the great unknown tragedies in 20th century China. The wheat, millet, and corn crop all failed. Rains didn't come, and the lean crop yields of 1940 and 41 were long consumed. Nothing new came in 1942. A famine of biblical proportions is going to hit Henan, which is one of the two or three most populous provinces in the most populous country in the world, you know, if you get the picture. The Henan famine was actually three disasters in one. First, it was a natural disaster caused by drought. Second, it was a disaster because the whole province was a war zone and the Japanese were doing their thing up there. Then the third disaster was the policies of opportunistic KMT officials who did nothing to provide aid to famine victims and, in fact, ended up carrying out a brutal and repressive tax policy that left the farmers with nothing. And before you know it, it was like the great leap forward that would follow 17 years later. No one was left standing who could pull a plow or work the fields. By the time this famine wound down, 1944, 3 million Henan had died of starvation. John's service brought word back to Chongqing of what was going on in Henan. And when he filed his report, which made it all the way to the top, detailing the extent of the human tragedy taking place, he placed blame on the nationalist government for exacerbating an already horrific situation. Well, if he wasn't a marked man already, he was now. The KMT censors and intelligence community stopped at nothing to prevent reports like this from getting out. Something of this magnitude had to be suppressed, lest those on the outside learn that the nationalists couldn't or wouldn't deal with it. After hearing from service about this famine, time correspondent Theodore White went all over Henan and reported on the extent of the disaster there. 
his March 1943 article in Time magazine was a wake-up call to the American public that something was going on in China that didn't reflect well on the ones in charge. It all just made Jiang Kai-shek that much more paranoid when news like this got out. Okay, let's call it a day right here in early 1942. We have the whole setup now for the life and career of John Service in part two of this series. It may finish in two or perhaps go to three, who knows. We'll look at the whole continuing saga of U.S.-China relations during the war years and right after. More of Uncle Joe, the Dixie Mission, and of course, I know you're all anxious for Patrick Hurley to make his grand entrance. Clear divisions are drawn. Everyone has taken sides. You're either pro-Jiang or you're not. And if you're not, there's a good chance you were sympathetic to the communists. And the word communist, communism, although certainly nothing good about that in the mainstream American psyche back in the 30s and 40s, but it did not have nearly the stink or taint that it did in the 1950s in the McCarthy era. So as John Service cozies up more with the CCP and gets totally involved in the Dixie mission and the whole radioactive fallout of Patrick Hurley's presence in China... He's going to find himself in boiling hot water when the witch hunts commence. So, hang in there. And in the next episode, number 116, we will continue on where we left off here at the Royal China History Podcast. This is a good story, isn't it? There are so many documents, interviews, books, private papers, memoirs, you name it, from this time. So all the dirt flying back and forth in Chongqing during the warriors make fascinating reading for anyone with the time and curiosity to check out all those documents great seneca podcast this last one from april 4th on the transgressions of apple computer and a rare appearance by david wolf which is always an unexpected treat and kaiser and jeremy also have a new and insightful china hand who i've never heard of before laurie burkett from the wsj wow dl that one if you have any interest whatsoever in the china consumer market great discussion We'll be back next week to look at John's service and the China hands of yesteryear. If we get to it in part two, we'll show how these men were torn down and destroyed because they, I guess in a way, did much the same thing Seneca and many other China hands today are doing. They were experts on the ground in China, and they got the word out about what was happening without adding any high fructose corn syrup or spin to what they saw with their own eyes. And for doing this kind of reporting and giving opinions, John Service and these other China hands we'll get to know in the next episode are going to be hung over the flames by their thumbs, in a manner of speaking, that is. So, once again, as the great one in KC always says, I hope you enjoyed that. This is Laszlo Montgomery of the China History Podcast, signing off from lovely Claremont, California, city of trees and PhDs. Another perfect day here in Cali, if I say so myself. I have an overnighter to Bentonville, Arkansas next week, but other than that, no travel on the horizon. And I can't tell you how glad I am about that. Mid-September, though, I'm coming to Beijing for about two weeks, and very much looking forward to that. Take care, everyone, and I look forward to seeing you next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.